We're reading from chapter Hebrews 13, the last few verses of the book. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with you all. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, it's always bittersweet for me when I come to the end of a book. It feels like I'm leaving a friend uh, on the side of the curb or something. And uh, so today, let me explain what we're going to be doing for the next couple of weeks in terms of uh, our sermonizing and all that sort of stuff. I'm going to finish the text of Hebrews today. Next week, I will do a review of the entire book of Hebrews, so as hopefully to leave us with a few coat hangers that we can put in our closet to come back to over the course of the few years that we'll be looking again in our private study and all the rest in the book of Hebrews. The following week, which will be week three from now, I will be doing an introduction to the book of Jonah as we're going to start a series in the Minor Prophets. The reason that we're going to Jonah is that Jonah is the oldest of the Minor Prophets, and so it'll be helpful for us to have a a historical backdrop and some of the context for what's going on during the period of the Minor Prophets. I I guarantee you I'll be doing very little talking about fish. I will approach Jonah maybe a little bit differently. If, and this is just, I'll remind you next week as well. If you have your maps that we've given out over the course of the last couple of years, bring your map because we'll be using that in the introduction to Jonah. If you don't, don't panic. I'm buying a bunch more and I'll have them for you in two weeks so that you can have a map to know where Assyria and Nineveh and all these other places are and all that kind of stuff. So today we come to the conclusion of the text of the book of Hebrews. And uh, like I say, I feel um, every book that I preach is my favorite book, at least while I'm there. And then we move forward from that whole thing. Um, A salutation is the way a letter is started, and it's also the way a letter is concluded. And uh, so we're kind of looking at the salutation of the book of Hebrews and and how a letter starts and how a letter ends may well be the most important part of the letter because in the conclusion we get kind of the summary of everything that has been said and we also get the tone of the letter in the introduction and in the conclusion. Now, Now, 
really and truly, you need to raise your hands today. When was the last, how many of you this week received a handwritten letter in the mail? More than I thought. That's very impressive. How many of you received a letter that was more than two pages long? Ah, the number diminished dramatically. Isn't that wild? Isn't that true? Um, I looked up salutations this week in my study. The most common uh, introduction is dear sir or dear Dave or dear madam or that kind of thing. And, and by that introduction, you know very little about whether or not, uh, the only thing that you know is that it's going to be formal. Uh, it, it, it's probably going to be somewhat businesslike. You don't write your wife or your husband or your girlfriend, dear sir or dear madam or any of the rest of that. And so uh, you, you're looking for those letters that start, dear beloved. Ah, that's what you're looking for. You know, and, and then the salutation at the end uh, tells you a great deal as well. The most common salutation at the end of a letter is sincerely. By that, the author of the letter is trying to tell you that they mean what they've said up to this point. And depending on who you're corresponding with, if you were to get a handwritten letter that was more than two pages long, you might be tempted to cheat to the end to see how the letter concludes. Uh, depending on who you're corresponding with, there's a transition, you know. Uh, it, it, it seldom ends sincerely, but it may say affectionately, uh, in which case there's hope if there's a person, uh, or, or can't wait to see you next. Uh, maybe it's a yours truly, which is kind of that intermittent, like I don't know what that means. It, it may mean something really great, or it may be just a way to get you off my back. But, but if you're corresponding with somebody for any length of time and you look to the end of the letter and it actually says, love, then you know progress is being made. And it's widely accepted in correspondence that the last couple of lines before the salutation can be among the most important because it's in those last couple of lines that you may be getting either the most important piece of information that you've gotten so far, uh, like, by the way, I'll be there in a week, or by the way, you will not be getting any more money from me. Or, by the way, I have a serious illness. Or it, it, the last couple of lines can be serious because they're a summary of everything that has been said before. Kind of a, a compilation, a wrap-up, and, and, and all the rest of this stuff. Well, enough of the lecture on letter writing, but the letters in the Bible hold some of these similar traits. And quite frankly, when we come to the end of the letters, we have a tendency to pay a little less attention. I mean, we really do. We just kind of gloss over it. It's uh, greetings from so-and-so and, you know, grace be with you and all that other kind of stuff. But, but in the case of the book of Hebrews, really and truly, 
there is some remarkable things that we need to pay attention to. And within these last few verses, I find there to be a summary of most everything that's been said up to this point, along with setting the tone. So as we plow through these verses, I would encourage you to look for the tone that comes through and also listen for some summary statements about what the the whole letter has been about up to this point. I'm going to start in verse 18, and and you might say, I I don't see why you're starting there. They kind of seem out of place because this is what they say. Verse 18, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. That is such a strange, strange verse. Pray for us, because we have a clear conscience. And and then I sat and I thought about that for a long time. It's very commonplace for us to say, would you mind praying for me? I asked you to pray for my friend Don last week and I'll give you an update about him later in the service. And, And so that idea is not uncommon, but then I thought about the clear conscience part of things and I thought, What does that mean and why would that be so important in the closing lines of this letter? And then I I realized what the writer is likely saying. Imagine, if you will, that you had a clear conscience every time you communicated with someone. And, And here's what I mean by that. Imagine that you knew categorically that everything that you had just communicated to somebody was absolutely true to your best knowledge, and it was accurate, and it was right, and it was valuable, and it was important to your hearer, that behind what you communicated were no ulterior motives and that you had communicated to that individual for the purpose of their benefit with nothing lying behind it. You weren't trying to coerce them into doing or believing something that you had in your mind, that your motive was absolutely pure and right. And I got to thinking about that and I thought, intentionally or unintentionally, very little of my communication could be considered that pure and that honest, nor could I say it was delivered with a clear conscience. You see, this writer can actually say to his hearers, everything that I am just communicated to you in this letter is right, is true, And I have delivered it to you with an absolutely clear conscience. Now that is extraordinary. When you consider the weight and the context of this letter, let alone the content, this writer sits back and says, pray for us because we have desired to act honorably and I am writing with a clear conscience. Verse 19 is equally interesting because he says, 
I want you to pray for us and I want you to pray more earnestly in order that we might be restored to you sooner. Now that's not all that strange, except that it's, it's almost ordinary, isn't it? I want to come see you, and I'm hoping that I can come to see you soon. And so would you pray earnestly that I can come see you soon? And then I thought about that, and I thought... Here's this massive theological letter that's been written to these people who are struggling with persecution and, and temptation to drift back into Judaism and, and, and the weight of the world is on their shoulders. And the writer says, pray that I can come to you soon. In the midst of this weight is a prayer for earnestness on something that at the outset seems so ordinary. And yet he valued the community of believers that much that he wanted earnest prayers so as to be gathered with them again quickly. My point in saying all of this is earnest prayer on the simplest matters is of enormous value to the believer so take it seriously when your friend comes to you and says would you please pray about this matter and it seems to be ordinary don't be shy about being in earnest in that prayer for that individual it's an extraordinary thing now we get to the meat and potatoes of the last few verses of this book. And this comes in verses 20 and 21. And in your Bible, it may be, have the heading of the benediction. It does in my Bible. It's these two verses, 20 and 21, which are, which are so often quoted. We've used it a number of times to conclude our services while we've been in the book of Hebrews. And it's the kind of thing that we hear and we think, man, those are great words. I have no idea what they mean, and I don't know what their value is, but, but uh, I, I like hearing them at the conclusion of the service. But here's what the writer of the book of Hebrews says. I'll start with verse 20, and he says this. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, and the sentence stops with no period there. It's the middle of the sentence. But let's just go back and kind of dissect this. May the God of peace, the word peace, is the word shalom. And I've made many comments about the word shalom over the course of this, and you may be tired of hearing me comment on the word shalom. It is the word that we translate in English as peace, but, but, it, but it really doesn't work in English. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again because it bears repeating. We think of peace as the absence of conflict. Shalom doesn't work that way. Shalom, or peace in the Bible, is contentment and satisfaction despite the circumstances in which you find yourself. Whether entirely hostile, whether neutral, whether happy, 
Shalom is peace in the midst of whatever circumstances one finds themselves. Now here, when it says, may the peace of God be with you, it means peace with God in that relationship. It means peace from God as a gift. And it also means peace with your temporal relationships. So speaking on an internal level, my peace with God is secure. My peace from God is secure. And God has granted me peace among the relationships that I have in the here and now, whether or not the circumstances warrant it from a human perspective. Now, I've been in churches, and I'm not poo-pooing this, and they're good churches, where people will often say, peace be with you. And the person will respond, and, and with you. But, but this writer is saying something vastly different. Now may the God of peace, the author, the the maker, the creator of the idea of peace with God, from God, and with others, who, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. The importance of the resurrection can never, ever, ever be minimized. And it's the way the writer of Hebrews chooses to conclude, I want to remind you that everything that I have said up to this point has come from the mouth of the God of peace who has raised our Lord and King from the dead. And the one that he has raised from the dead is the great shepherd of the sheep. Your relationship with the Lord that God has brought back from the dead is that he is shepherd and you are sheep. And this has been accomplished by the blood of the eternal covenant. Now this is all great Old Testament language, language that we may not understand, this covenant language. The word eternal, and, and you all know this, but it just bears repeating, the word eternal means without beginning and without end. Not just endless in this direction, endless in both directions. This great shepherd who was raised from the dead by the God of peace has been secured by an eternal covenant. Now in the Bible, if you're a counting individual, and depending on how you count, there are six or seven great covenants in the Bible. Uh, it started with God's covenant with Abraham, I'm sorry, with Adam and then the covenant with Noah and then the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Israel or what we call the law. And then it comes to the new covenant which is introduced to us in the book of Jeremiah. And Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. That's what's being referred to here. But it's being referred to as the eternal covenant. Meaning it is a covenant that has been put in place by God before time began. There was no beginning to it and there will not be any end to it as well. God has brought you into relationship with himself 
through the blood of the new eternal covenant, which didn't have beginning and which did not have end. Now, there's quite a bit of weight in that, the beginning of that sentence, isn't it? And that's actually a summary of much of the book of Hebrews, introducing us to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is superior in every way. He is king over everything. He is high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, meaning he has no beginning and no end. And he is the one that has secured for you peace from God, with God, and with mankind. In that half a sentence, he summarized the content of half the book of Hebrews. With that introduction, he goes on in verse 21 and says, May this God equip you with everything good that you may do his will. Now the word equip, again, is a word that doesn't translate very well into English. When, when uh, and I could pick out people in the, in the congregation to say, you know, if, if this individual is equipped to do that job, he needs certain things, right? Whether it be a paintbrush, whether it be a tool, whether it be a particular piece of knowledge, that's how we think being equipped works. The word in the original here is, is quite a bit different, though, actually. The word equipped here means to take something that is not working right and to fix it so that it can perform the function for which it was designed. Does that make sense? I like old pocket watches. I, I really do. 1880s, 1890s pocket watches, big silver turnips, you know, weigh about four and a half pounds. So you can knock out a horse with them. I like them. I own a couple of them. They don't work right. And it's really hard to get them to work right. I can get them to work within a minute or two, an hour, you know, but they always run a little slow or a little fast. The word here means to take that watch and make it work like it just came out of the box. Like it never has seen the ding of a pocket and to perform the job for which it was designed to do. Isn't that the story of us with God through Christ? He has taken that which is broken, made it new so that it can do what it was intended to do. So when you hear this benediction, now may the God of peace equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ. It's a whole new meaning, isn't it? It's an entirely different meaning. And listen to how the benediction ends. To him be glory forever and ever. You see, man 
deserves glory for nothing. Because we were broken and have been fixed. The Lord Jesus Christ deserves all the glory for all eternity. Amen. Now that's a benediction. That's the way to end a letter. And that also is the other half of the book of Hebrews, isn't it? How the Lord Jesus Christ took that which is broken, whether it was the old law and the system that was imperfect and fixed it in the new covenant. How he took individuals like you and me and redeemed us from the pit so that we could accomplish what we were designed to accomplish. That's what the book of Hebrews is about. Those two verses, verse 20 and 21, are the summary of the whole book. To a very large extent, how Christ is prophet, priest, king, and accomplished the eternal work of God through Christ on our behalf. And then the letter ends with uh, almost a little housekeeping. But, but they're very important. And, and, he, and it sets the tone, you see? It sets the tone for the whole letter. We, we've had the summary, now we have the tone. I appeal to you, brothers. Appeal. I, I, I beg. Bear with my word of exhortation. Listen. Pay attention. Take it to heart. I'm writing you with a clear conscience. Bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. That's the part I love. This would have been an eight-page letter on parchment. Nothing brief about it in our little world. We get a text that's three lines long and has an emoji. And that's supposed to communicate the tone of life. How stupid. I mean, how stupid. I'm going to send a smiley face to my wife. And that's supposed to mean I love you. Stupid. I appeal to you, bear with my word of exhortation. I have written to you briefly. He could have filled volumes with what he has to say. And you should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes. Now, why? It, 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 it's nice to know Timothy's out of prison. But how much in the book of Hebrews did the writer write about what true worship is? Visiting those in prison? Taking care of those who are afflicted? Here's a picture of that by sharing the news with this little congregation. Your brother Timothy is out of prison. And, and if God wills, we'll be coming together to visit you. That's, 
That's grand news for a people who are on the face of of persecution and have had their own brothers and sisters in prison. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Don't forget anybody. You know? Tell them hello. It matters. And because those who come from Italy send their greetings. We have no idea who they were. But isn't that nice? I mean, if we live in a world where writing letters mattered and the only time you got communication from somebody else was twice a year, maybe, because it took that long to get a letter to you from a place that was 500 or 1,000 miles away, and, and you read this piece of manuscript and it said, your fellow believers say hi. That would matter. That would matter. And it mattered here. And then the letter ends. Grace be with you all. And we say those words and we hear those words. And I'm not being critical of you. I'm being critical of myself. They're, they're, they're meaningless to me. But if I had just read this letter for the first time in one sitting and I had just had this summary statement written by someone with a clear conscience and he called it brief and I longed for more. Wouldn't you long for more? More detail, more content. You could have gone on and on and I never would have missed a beat. Grace be with you all. Unmerited favor from God rest on your head. Now that's how to sign off a letter. May the unmerited favor of God rest on you in the face of what you've just read. That's how to conclude a letter. Well, I'll be honest with you, I'm left with a choice here. Will I give heed to what is written here? We've learned a lot together. A lot of it will just be forgotten. Somebody somewhere else will preach on the same text and you may say, yeah, I remember something about that. Do do I give heed to it? Do I ponder it? Do I reflect upon it? Do I think about it? What I would encourage us to do, if you don't do anything else, just read verses 20 and 21. And think about what it brings to your mind from the content of the letter. You see? Because in a very real way, it's a summary and a conclusion. But my goodness, dear friends, 
how gracious God is to have given us this letter because you see, it was written to us. To us. In 2023 in Buena Vista, Colorado, as much as it was written 2,000 years ago to another group of people. This is the eternal word of God that was written to us. So when we read these words, may the God of peace equip you, it is you, it is me. When he concludes, grace be with you all, it is you and me as much as it has been anybody in history, which is extraordinary. Let me pray. Father in heaven, I, I'm overwhelmed by the word of God. And it has the power to exalt and destroy. It has the power to save. It has the power to change. And it is the same yesterday, today, and forever. May we heed its contents. And thank you that you have bestowed upon us grace and mercy through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our great shepherd, our Messiah, our King, our priest, the one who mediates for us, the one who has equipped us and made us worthy of service to you. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.